Well, hello, church family. Um, this is going to be our little series that we're going to do for the next two weeks or so in really a response and um, a discussion or a critique, depending on how you want to look at it, of the Black Lives Matter movements. Um, I think as a pastor, uh, one of our responsibility is to give clarity on the issue with the scriptures that we have. Um, because we fear that uh, this movement has been dividing, you know, obviously dividing the culture outside of the church. Um, and it shouldn't be in the place inside the church because uh, we have the scripture. Uh, if we believe that the scripture is is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This means that we should be able to look at the movements, look at what they believe, and have a biblical response for it. Um, I know that this has been a hot-button issue for a lot of us, and um, and I do want to just state that um, we are not experts in the sense of all those social things, but we are at, uh, we're theologians. Uh, as Christians, we should be able to uh, discern discern or discern. Uh, what is truth and what is error. And I think what's so muddled and difficult about the Black Lives Matter expression in the um, last few weeks is that there are aspects of it which I think we would all agree with. Uh, there are things in it which will say things like amen and amen to. Um, but there are also a huge part of uh, what they believe that we cannot hold to. That if you are a biblical uh Student, if you're a student of God's word, if you are a, uh, if you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, if you believe in the infallibility of Scripture, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's going to be things that uh, they hold to that is contrary to what the uh, biblical uh, understanding of of the world. Um, in case you're wondering, what are the things that we affirm? What are the things that we would look at the Black Lives Matter and say, okay, yeah, we're for that. And honestly, as I'm doing all my research, as I'm reading a whole bunch from the, the movement, I can really only come up with two. Uh, the first is the is the the Black Lives Matter, in that uh, uh, we don't want um, black people to get killed. Uh, we want we want to do our best to um, encourage justice in terms of the preservation of their life. Of course, they matter to us. Uh, and that's where we would say it's an important thing because uh, every black lives is, is made in the image of God. Um, and I think the problem with the Black Lives Matter is that it's more than just a statement. So I'll put it this way. Do I believe in Black Lives Matter? Well, I think it really depends on how you define it. Because as an ontological statement, I would say, yes, I would believe, I, I, I wholeheartedly believe it. In fact, if you asked me, does Black Lives Matter 10 years ago, before this movie began, I would say, of course, why wouldn't it? Black people are made in the image of God, and they need to be treated with love and respect because they're our neighbors. Um, so why uh, wouldn't I hold to the fact that Black Lives Matter? Again, as a statement, meaning that if you just read it as is, then of course I would believe it. And I think all of us would agree to that. Um, but when we hear and when people say, are you for Black Lives Matter, it's actually not just that those three words. There's a deeper meaning in, into it because there's a, it's a movement. It's a movement that has its um, own understanding of ideals. And it has even 
I would argue, even theological um, undertones. Uh, they have they make certain truth claims that need that they claim to be absolutes. Uh, that if you don't hold to these things, then you are in the wrong side of history. And there are a lot of things that they hold to uh, that is loaded with theological implications, and even excerpts that uh, are just blatantly against the Bible. Um, so what we hope to do uh, with this, so this is going to be a four-part series. It's going to be the four-part series. Uh, uh, the first part is going to be what I'm going to do today, which is the history of the Black Lives Matter. Um, I think more than just understanding their origins, um, we, I want to also shepherd us and understand the theological backgrounds of where they're coming from. Uh, I want us to know that uh, what they believe and how they operate is not new, that there are uh, doctrines uh, there's theolo- they, when they say certain things, especially in the Christian church, when they claim to be black lives are in the context of a Christian church, they're, they're operating off a certain worldview. Uh, and I want to, and I want to trace all of those things so you can see how antithetical those worldviews are to the scriptures. Then the next one I'm going to do, I'm going to do a critique of the Black Lives Matter, a biblical critique of the Black Lives Matter movement. And how I'm going to do that is I'm literally going to have the Black Lives Matter webpage in front of me, and I'm just going to read to you what they say, what they have written, what they believe. And then we're going to look at it with the Bible and say, okay, is this biblical? Is the thing that they've written on their website and on all of these different things, is are these things things that, the, that actually the Bible holds to. Again, I said that there's two things that we would um, that we agree upon. The first is that Black Lives Matter, and second, that we want justice to be uphold in the sense that we believe that if there are corrupted indiv- cops or officials that don't uphold the law, they need to be held accountable for. They need to be removed because it's a disgrace to the Lord that they uh, bear the arm with injustice motives, uh, with the intent of harming other people instead of suppressing evil. So those are the two things that we would agree with, uh, that Black Lives Matter and that corrupt uh, police officers need to be held accountable. So that's going to be the critique. Uh, and the third one, Roger is going to do the theology of the Black Lives Matter um, movement. Uh, he's going to look at what uh, he's going to look at different areas of, of, of true biblical doctrine and compare it to how the Black Lives Matter define or try to redefine uh, areas of, of theology. And I trust that it's going to be really helpful because he's going to, you're going to see different parallels in how Black Lives Matter is, in a sense, if you look at them and you truly read what they're saying, it is actually partly a religious group. It is not just a statement of fact, but they actually have ideals um, that, that, that makes them seem like a religious group. And then lastly, uh, the fourth part is which is something we've shared, uh, that we've asked all of you that if you have any questions, please send them in. Uh, the intent of this question is really the application, like, so what of these things? Uh, we've got some questions that are coming in that will help inform us even how, at least for me, how, um, I can address some of the history as well. So it's helpful. Um, we haven't set the date yet on when we're going to do the question and answer, but it should be within the two or three weeks from now. Um, and that's our hope to be able to show you that if you understand the history, if you understand uh, what they believe, and as we critique it biblically, and you even understand their theology, um, that you have that you'll make a critical and biblical conclusion on how you need to approach this group. Um, because what I fear the most is what the, all of the apostles in the New Testament fear. 
that there are people and ideas that creep into the church that will draw people away from the faith. Um, again, how, how can that be? Well, we're going to look at that. Um, but before I start into the, before I begin the history, I do want to start our time with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask you for a tremendous amount of wisdom and humility as we look through this. Um, this is this movement uh, is not a new movement, although it seems new to us. Uh, we trust ultimately in the sufficiency of your word, and we do pray that uh, we first and foremost live life by it, and we think critically with it. Lord, be with me, be with all of us as we um, as we look through. Um, as, myth, as much as we can with this movement, that we ultimately don't care so much about what the world thinks, but we care first and foremost about what you think, Lord. Be with us in this series, um, that we uh, have a humble heart and a teachable heart, um, and that you can even be with all all of us um, to ultimately love you more, be faithful with the, uh, with, with the life that you've given us. We thank you for this day and this time that we have. In some name I pray. Amen. So I would say that every false doctrine begins at the fall. So when we're looking at the history of the Black Lives Matter, uh, we're going to be, I'm going to, or at least the, uh, the history of it, uh, maybe I should just do a caveat. How I'm going to present this um, presentation or a session, whatever you want to call it, I'm going to first look at the theological history of them, and then I'm going to look at the actual history, the movement of them. And I'll also look at how the church, um, how the Black Lives Movement has integrated into the church or into institutions that we uh, would either hold hold to high regards or groups that claim to be Christians that have adopted these, uh, the, the adopted Black Lives Matter, not, again, the ideal, ideologies of Black Lives Matter. So uh, with that said, I do think that from a theological standpoint, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is, is based off of um, understandings and uh, thinking that is contrary to the scripture. And I believe that every uh, false view is, begins from the fall. Genesis 3, uh, when the serpent asks this question, did God really say, you understand that every theological um, structure that I, or paradigm that I'm going to bring up is actually going to use that question. Did God really say this? Um, and, and, and again, these are the ones that claim to be Christian, or I guess some of them would be claimed, would claim to look like Christians, um, but use uh, thinking that are contrary to scripture. So that's, I think, uh, all false ideas come from there. And as time progresses in history, things just warp uh, with maybe different vocabulary and different emphases. Uh, but the truth, the, the undercurrent is still always there. Whenever there's a false teaching, it's always the idea of attacking uh, the Word of God. So in 19, around 1960, there was an idea of um, what we would call liberation theology. Uh, and I'm going to build on uh, how liberation theology gets to where Black Lives Matter is, so just roll with me here. Uh, so liberation theology is kind of where it begins. Uh, there's other things that kind of came before, but I would just start with the liberation theology, mainly because liberation theology has in uh, was really the first kind of movement uh, that had this concept that uh, we need to eradicate poverty in the world. 
uh, one of the main proponents of this uh, of this movement is his name is Father Gustavo. He is actually a Catholic priest that ministered uh, to people in South South America or Latin America, South America, and he felt this plight for the poor and um, he wanted to figure out a way in which we they could deliver uh, the poor uh, from all their afflictions. Now, on the surface, that seems like a good idea, and I would argue that the Bible speaks very clearly about how we need to minister to the poor. And I'm going to read some to you. Uh, Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, verse 20. It instructs Solomon here, is instructing, is giving just basic uh, understanding of the rich and the poor. But one of the things that he, some, there's a few things that Solomon Proverbs Proverbs 14, verse 20 reads, The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. Uh, he who despises his neighbor sins, but happy he, is he who is gracious to the poor. Um, there is this, this general understanding about life where people seem to be uh, uh, hate the poor. Uh, um, uh, but as Christians, as people that operate the world, we have to understand that we need to be gracious to them. Um, uh, the, po- the poor people are and as we, say, as we will see in this next verse, Proverbs 14, verse 31, he, will oppress, oh, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. He, he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Proverbs 17, uh, 5, he who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Proverbs 19, 17, uh, one who is gracious to the poor, man lends to the Lord, and he, will, and he, meaning God, will repay him for his good deeds. Uh, but as we, as I'm going through this, some, one of the things that proponents of liberation theology fail to understand is actually this verse in Proverbs 22, verse 2, that the rich and the poor have a common bond, that the Lord is the maker of them all. This means that God is the one who decides in his sovereign will those that are rich and those that are poor. Now, this doesn't mean that the value of the person is any less based on uh, how much money or how little they have. Uh, in fact, uh, part of the reason why I think the poor exist in the Old Testament is to show the world that Israel is different. Uh, you recall in the Old Testament, uh, they were supposed to uh, let the, the corner of the fields for the poor, the strangers, uh, and the poor both inside Israel and outside. And the intent is to show that their God is a generous God. Uh, we, we went through the book of Ruth, and that's what happened for Ruth. Um, uh, Ruth was able to just glean off the side because uh, because of uh, Boaz, and Boaz understood uh, what Scott's expectation in terms of ministering to the poor. Now I say that because um, again, sometimes bad uh, teaching have some things that are good, much like this Black Lives Matter movement. So when it comes to the poor, this guy Gustavo, uh, Father Gustavo, has at least in the, in the baseline a love for the poor, which is a good thing. We should, as Christians, care for those that are needy, both inside and outside of the church. Um, and the Lord even makes the, the needy for us to show that, uh, um, that the love of God, that we have, oppor- we have basically an infinite opportunity to minister to people. So when people say, oh, I have no idea what to do in the church, like one thing you can do that will always be there because Jesus said the poor will always be with you is to minister to the poor. Uh, there will always be poor people for you to care for. And as you 
minister to them, understand that you're not just giving them food for the sake of just giving them food, but that you're giving them food in hopes that you can share the gospel with them so that they could be part of the church body and they could get, they get to see what heaven is like. Because the church is supposed to be a piece of what heaven is supposed to look like. The church has the rich and the poor. The rich is supposed to be generous and care for those that are needy. And the needy are, are, are unique in the church because they're constantly independent of the Lord. And they can, like, they, you can actually, if you're a poor person in the church, uh, you have a greater um, faith, uh, mainly because you're constantly trusting the Lord for your daily bread. And that can, in the in the dynamics of the church, that um that that's a blessing for both the rich and the poor. Now the world does not know how to treat the poor. The world's understanding of the poor is just that they need to be done away with. Uh, if you look at history, the only people that uh, that cared for the poor were Christians. They were the first, uh, or people that operate off a Christian worldview because they understood that the poor was made in the image of God. Now this is that all this was just a short tangent, but. Uh, Father Gustavo had this thing in mind. He believed that uh, Christ came and died for so that the poor could be abolished. Now, this is where it becomes bad. Christ did not die so that people can be like rich in terms of uh, uh, rich in this life. Um, they, he started going overboard, he, and he basically taught this theology called not only liberation theology, but kingdom theology. That in order for Christ to return, we have to make this world look like the kingdom of God uh, by by getting rid of all poverty. So he believed that the gospel is that Christ came into the world so that you don't have to be poor. And this became, uh, this is a Roman Catholic teaching, uh, so that we can just say this is how it uh, began. Now, in the 1966, this is where um, American took this idea, but they they, they took the idea of uh, God saving the poor and they switched it. To a we uh, to God to God saving um, blacks. This is where we get this idea of black liberation theology. So it built on that. First begins with liberation theology, then it goes to black liberation theology. And uh, if you've been listening to uh, Pastor Rogers posting on the Just Thinking podcast, you'll hear this name, this one particular name that comes up over and over. And this guy's name is James Cohn. He's one of the biggest proponents of it. He believes that Christ came into the world to liberate blacks from the oppression of whiteness. Um, he believes that Christ in the scriptures is actually a, a black person. He believes that God has to be black because God identifies with the oppressed. Therefore, um, he, if, if God, if the gospel is not about uh, delivering uh, uh, the, the blacks from the white oppressors, then the Bible is wrong. And James Cone his idea of the black liberation theology was a reaction to what Malcolm X said to him. Because Malcolm X, uh, you know, you guys kind of know who he is, but he's uh, he said that black people cannot be Christians because Christianity is a white man's religion. Uh, and then James Cohn kind of took uh, uh, took offense to that and tried to make a theology that went against uh, that thinking, so that he would. Uh, use certain passages in scripture and try to make it seem, make a parallel between uh, the, uh, the black American experience um, or, the oppress, uh, or the oppressed people that are black. So he'll, he'll allegorize scripture. And one of the things that uh, both the liberation and black liberation theology will use is the exodus. Uh, they'll say that, oh, see the Jews, they were slaves and they're, they, uh, and they're going to this promised land. And uh, that's the picture of 
of, of black people being free from the Amer the white slave slave owners and then that, and are going to this promised land. Now, what's weird about this hermeneutic is that uh, if you study the Old Testament, you know that once they get to once they cross the Jordan, the Israelites were not faithful. So at some point, this uh, her, this this allegory stops. But they but James Cone will often try to use um, characters in scripture and try to bend it towards um, bend it towards uh, uh, basically uh, African Americans that are oppressed. Uh, he talk, he talks a lot about the theology of blackness and uh, he sees God as a liberator and he uh, mentions really that uh, the greatest sin is having this white privilege. Uh, he wants to uh, fight uh, poverty and oppression and sees that Christ came into the world so that everyone can re uh, repent of their privilege. Um, and uh, he, tr this guy, jo uh, Cones, treasures hostility against the uh, against the whites. Uh, anytime where there, uh, if you ever read his stuff, anytime where there is um, he's speaking about white people or whiteness, he says that like white people need to repent of their whiteness and um, uh, and their privilege and all of these different things. And the focus in his eyes is that uh, the is on the, is, is, is in terms of the skin color. He thinks that uh, your skin color or your race, particularly those that are in the white and privileges, are are a sin. And um, you know, as we see this, this is really just a victim mentality, um, and he, he's just trying to find ways to uh, overcome it. And I think Roger will speak a little bit more about this on his section. But I'm just, again, uh, all th three of these, all a lot of what we're going to say is going to overlap. Uh, but just for the sake of uh, explaining the history of Black liberation theology, you have to understand that they have this ethnic soteriology, meaning that you know God strictly by your blackness. Uh, God is never viewed as a white person or even white, but even he's, we know that that's we know that's true. Um, but rather, it's more like, which is actually kind of funny if you read Revelation, which Jesus comes with a white robe. But anyways, it's weird because it focuses more on like, you know this little racial tension between white and blacks, but it doesn't bring any other ethnicity into this. It's only focused between the oppressor, which is white people, and the oppressed, which are black people. And he sees whatever's whiteness as evil, and therefore God cannot be white. Um, and throughout his writings, you would see things like they need to destroy and overthrow the white devil, and they think that the government is their savior, um, that they need to put all of these different structures in place so that uh, because that's what Christ would have done is that this is their, is their logic um, and really uh, the uh, cones and people that are for the black liberation theology see that Christ is the avenger for blacks in the United States uh, so that's the black liberation theology so the first liberation theology black liberation theology and what comes after that is feminist theology uh, I'm not going to talk too much about this, but feminist theology is basically using the Bible to uh, it, it, try to find passages in the Bible that promotes women leadership. Uh, so they love uh, things like Esther, uh, or they love uh, passages like um, Deborah in the Book of Judges, uh, or Mary. You know, their, 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 their intention is to try to elevate all the women in the leader in the uh, scripture so that women can be pastors in the church 
and, and like uh, the black liberation theology, they, they tend to see women as oppressed and needing to overcome the oppressor. So they'll see men uh, as the ones over uh, in the context of the church that are oppressing women and they need to be free from it. Um, you know that this sounds familiar because it's the, the egalitarian theology or, or yeah, the egalitarian thinking. Egalitarian is, is this idea that there's no uh, specific gender roles. So in the context of marriage, uh, women can lead and men can uh, submit or whatever is whatever works for them. In the context of the church, they'll say things like, well, women can be elders in the First Timothy 2 tells us that's not the case. Um, there are egalitarians that are believers, but feminist theology kind of pushes that a little bit further. Uh, we, if you're wondering, we are called complementarian in that God has made everyone different, uh, same in terms of value, but different in terms of roles and responsibilities. So from feminist theology, so liberation theology speaks of what uh, overthrowing uh, the oppressor and then black liberation is overcoming the white oppressor specifically feminist theology is speaking of overthrowing the men in uh in the church and then that, and out from that spawns this other thing called the woman womanist theology uh womanist theology is the black woman's response to the feminist theology group so the woman theologist said like well the feminist theology is not enough because the, the, the feminist theology people tend to be focused on white women, whereas women's theology wants to focus on the oppression of black women. So the same way they would, you look, they'll look at scripture and they'll say, like, oh, Ruth is black, Esther is black, and all, it's basically trying to make everything seem as like all the women were black people that are overcoming um, the obstacle to become uh, and be in the positions that they're in. Um, and from that, this, these, so this, these are all this, the the 1960s, by the way. When we get to 1970, uh, there is movement, there is an idea from the world called postmodernism. Postmodernism is the idea that you, what you see is not what, what you believe is right is not going to be what I think is right. And again, we know this from scripture. This is basically what the, the judges, nothing new is under the sun in that sense. But postmodernists came from originally when people were looking at art pieces. And actually a lot of these thinking came when people were looking at literature. Uh, again, it goes back to the question, did God really say? But postmodernism has its origin when they look at art. Uh, some people will say like, oh, what you see is green, what I see is red. What if what you see and what I see were actually two different things? Uh, which is complete nonsense because every postmodernist follows uh, uh, stoplights. Right? Every postmodernist um, uh, knows like red and like you know like stoplights and other colors that indicate where to go or where to stop. Um, Post-modernity uh, was seemed like a really cool idea because it essentially makes the person interpreting it the authority. Um, and uh, and again, postmodernism doesn't work in reality because it doesn't work. Let's say in, the, in like a financial business, you know, if, if you get a check, you can't say, "Oh, uh, postmoderns will say, well." Uh, if you if you try to give a check to postmodernism that has zero dollars and say, hey, you're supposed to pay me, it's like, well, that's just your interpretation of what the number is on the page, on the check. Um, you know, so they only, this really, postmodernism only operate in terms of morality. And, the, and that's the reason why they uh, say that what's right for you is right for you, because they don't want to be under the authority of anyone. So from postmodernism in 1970, eventually comes this idea of critical race theory. Um, so, critical. I, I, I'm I'm going to eventually talk more about this in length down the line, but for now I'm just going to summarize what critical race theory is. 
uh, so let me back up. Critical race theory is actually is spawns out of critical theory. Critical theory is this idea that everything in life needs to be evaluated from a oppress and oppress the oppress and those are being oppressed like the, like the, the uh, certain classes or uh, wealth or certain classes of people that are oppressing certain individual people that's what critical theory is critical race critical race theory which comes after that is saying well what's the oppression between whites and black um, it, it's this idea of you uh you are in a position, you need to identify yourself and look at all of the social, sociological implications of where you are in society. Uh, are you are, are you the oppressor class or are you the one being oppressed? Um, and from that, uh, critical race theory eventually comes this thing called intersectionality. Again, I'm gonna speak, I might speak about both of these in length, but intersectionality was uh, was invented by this lady named Kimberly Crenshaw, and she tr attempted to try to free those who are being oppressed. Uh, but how she wants to do it, which is you know, similar to critical race theory, about oppress, uh, getting o o overthrowing those that are oppressing you, she theorized that um, depending on what you have in your life and where you are, who you are, uh, you have a greater oppression. So, for example, she would say if you are a woman then you are by default oppressed because we live in a male patriarchal society. So that's one point for you. Uh, but if you're in, if you're a black person, that's a woman, then you have two points because not only uh, are you oppressed by uh, oppressed as a woman, but you're also oppressed as a person of color. And if you are a homosexual, then you are a person that's triply oppressed. That you're a woman that is color that is homosexual. That's three layers of oppression. Um, so if we were even look at a context of SFBC, SFBC is largely a minority church in that we have a lot of Asians. <laughs> so technically, all of us have at least one point. If you're a lady in the church, you have at least two points. Uh, and the reason why that is is because they said this is all of these oppression, all these that intersect. Um, they, they show you your oppression and, uh, and, and, and all of these things combined shows you who you are, the heart of the person. Uh, you are this woman of color, uh, this homosexual, and this and this and that. Um, and you need to see how oppressed you are so you know how to overcome those oppression. And, and you need to start demanding uh, uh, basically your rights to overcome these things. Uh, now, these are all ideas that are originally from the world, right? We understand that the world comes up with crazy things, but the problem is, is it start bleeding into the church. Uh, people in the church like if I use the example of like what we do with SFBC, it would be like if someone in SFBC started uprising saying, oh, well, I am a woman of this and this and that, uh, and you need to listen to me, you male oppressors. You know, like uh, they're trying to overcome. Uh, and the reason, and you see in all of these, it's, it's, it's really a question about power. They want authority. They want to be able to, um, this, these type of thinking, this idea of trying to overcome different people so they can have power over certain things. Um, from so backtracking, liberation theology, le uh, uh, about overcoming just the uh, poverty and white rich, and to the black liberation theology is so overcoming blacks to whites, uh, feminists, which is uh, male to f female to male in terms of inside the church. A womanist theology in terms of emphasis of black women in the context of society and in the church. Postmodernity, do whatever you want. Critical race theory, uh, understanding where you are in society, uh, particularly with race and you're being oppressed. 
and intersectionality, all of the things that, uh, that, that actually makes you oppressed. So this is all like part of building up one another into the Black Lives Matter. And there's one thing, few things I, I haven't touched on that I'll just kind of briefly mention. The LGBTQ movement in the 90s, queer theory, all these things, uh, and even social, the social gospel. These are all things that lead into the Black Lives Matter movement because the Black Lives Matter movement holds to everything that I say. When I go to the part two, when I speak of all of the things of the critique, you'll see each and every single one of these things appear. All of these groups, um, in, if you were to look at it, hold from what we would say far left views. And at, again, as I said, at the end of the day, it's all about dethroning power, um, of, uh, destroying the order of things uh, in order to in order to just uh, what they in their eyes, they feel like it's like equality, but really it's not. It's just basically destroying what God has established, because each and every single one of these things, all the theology, they, they are all trying to uh, overthrow that overthrow the structure by asking, did God really say this? Or think about it. Did God really say that uh, women cannot lead in the church? Did God really say that uh, marriage is between a male and female? Did God really say, and then all of the theology ask uh, those questions um, to a certain degree. And, and in the end, as biblical Christians, we must be willing to say, yes, God did say these things. Compromises uh, is what is is why these groups exist. There are some Christians that did not hold to biblical worldview that were challenged by these things, and they couldn't stand on the truth of Scripture, so they compromised and gave way to these movements. That is why I am afraid. Uh, about, uh, that's why I'm most afraid about this movement. Uh, when people are buying into the Black Lives Matter, I'm not sure if you understand what you mean when you say you're part of Black Lives Matter. Because within the context of the church, uh, you might think that Black Lives Matter means the, like, like what I said, the, um, the stopping of murdering of, of black people. But if you put that on the internet, if you say that out loud, if you're part of a march, no one will see that. In fact, I would say if someone from the Black Lives Matter read what we believe on our website, they will say definitively that we are on the wrong side of history. So we need to be discerning. Uh, when we say that we are part of Black Lives Matter or that we support Black Lives Matter, there has to be ca caveats. There are just things that like we can't say, well, we support every little thing. Because if you, again, if you look at their website, you will say, you can't say that you believe everything that they say. Uh, so that's the theological aspect, is the theological history. Now we're going to talk about the, the, the movement's history. So I'm going to go from outside the church and inside the church. Outside the church, uh, the, this movement began in 2013, and it was made by three, I think, I'm going to say two women and one man, because one of them is a transgender, but they all identify themselves as women. There's these three women that saw um, the murder of Trayvon Martin as unjust, uh, and the you know, acquittal of George Zimmerman, uh, they said that this was this is really the catalyst that sparked everything. Uh, they would say on their website that yeah, like this is the event that we felt was unjust, uh, that the law is corrupted and we need to fight back. And uh, since then, they've just been kind of logging each and every single one of these, what they viewed as unjust murders of black people. Um, and I'm not going to get into all of the statistics um, of it, but I think. We have to understand that what we see in the news is obviously intended um, to push this movement. Um, 
if you do look at all the statues, you would know that it's, although one life gone is bad, one injustice is bad, um, it's not as grand as the way that they make it. Again, I'm not saying, I'm not diminishing the life of the individuals that died. I'm just saying that um, there's, a, there's a sense that we get as you're just observing and consuming the news that the cops are somehow like running around just killing all black people. And that's the narrative that they want to portray, but that's not actually what's going on. But as if you're not discerning, you might actually believe that's what's going on. Um, you can look at all their other researches as well, but uh, from 2013 is when they began. And really the, this group, it just got a lot bigger in just like a few weeks ago after the death of George Floyd and the you know, culmination of all of these different things, not just him, but all these other people that, that, that were killed. Um, some, you can argue, were just, some were unjust. And in the end, the Lord knows whether we see the verdict. Because no matter how much we see the, the, this whole situation, we cannot view the motive of the heart. Uh, we can look at the actions, but we can't tell whether it was an accident, whether it was deliberate, whether it was racist or whatever. Uh, we could only say that a life was taken, and that's and that's that's unfortunate. And it's because living in a fallen world, uh, we will never have perfect justice in this side of eternity. But again, we can rest in the assurance that God, uh, that God's justice will always be intact, and his and his justice is consistent. So that's like, kind of like the quick summary of outside the church. Now, inside the church, this is where it gets, this is where I fear uh, could potentially happen to us, I'm, I'm, or even us, meaning SFBC and even some of the other Reformed churches that are our brothers and sisters. So Black Lives Matter started 2013. In 2015, uh, Urbana, or is an inter-varsity conference, uh, Urbana, they had this conference on missions, and that's what really Urban is, is every year they have this mission conference. This is one of those unique when, when Christians start wearing these shirts saying Black Lives Matter. If you, I don't know if you remember this, but when it happened, there were like all, it was I think the last day of the conference, there was all the kids, uh, teenagers and college students that were wearing these shirts that said Black Lives Matter, and they were like doing the worship music and everything. And uh, they believe that Black Lives Matter was a pro-life movements and again on the surface it makes sense because you know black lives matter is yeah we agree with the uh, the preservation of, of black lives but when you see that uh, as even intervarsity began adopting the logo or the, the statement they eventually start compromising in every other area as well they start talking about the lgbtq they start um accepting um you know, egalitarians have views that rejecting aspects of the Bible. And uh, and that that was kind of like the first, I, I mean, InterVarsity is kind of liberal in a sense already, but it just made it clear that it's cool for Christians to be part of this. Um, not long after that, we have this thing called the Revoice, uh, which is a conference that affirmed uh, also from Black Lives Matter, but they basically affirm the LGBTQ in the context of the church. They say, on the surface, it seems like, okay, yeah, we we know that, that there are going to be people in the church struggling with um, same-sex attraction or uh, you know uh, gender dysphoria. We get that. Um, but what they're saying is, is they, they, they started at that point, but they're slowly drifting even more, saying that, like, oh, it's, it's okay uh, to have... Uh, LGBT, uh, you know, all those uh, 
homosexual desires and may, even making a justification for it. Um, but we know that the like they were basically saying that if you have like homosexual lust, it's okay. But we know that the Bible speaks that lust is a sin. It, it, uh, it's, it's considered adultery in your own heart. But this revoice tries try to make people believe that it's okay not just to have the desires, but to even have the thoughts of it and then to like dwell on their, their thoughts and potentially even making them, you know, you, you can marry if you like. It's even in the Revoice conference, they said that there could be two gay men or women that can glorify God and show the love of God in the context of their marriage. But the Bible doesn't speak of LGBTQ as marriage. Marriage is defined between a man and a woman. Um, that's a Revoice. Well, recently, uh, two years ago, there was the MLK 50. This was, was weird uh, because we have a whole bunch of what we would call reform preachers there. Piper was there. Deborah was there. H.P. Charles was there. Um, but in that conference, uh, there was a, there was a conflict even between one another. Um, what one person held was not something that what another person held. Um, they were taking shots at other, like, they were taking subtle shots at not even each other, but other people outside of their conference. Uh, they took shots at people like Vody Bauckham and uh, MacArthur and everyone else. Um, and if you look, if you listen to all the LK50 LK uh, sermons, not all of them you would agree with. Even Dever himself would say, like, yeah, not every single one of the LK50 that he would agree to, but yet he was still one of the panelists and one of the speakers there. Um, and there was a danger in this is because uh, this is when people start accepting critical race theory and intersectionality. They start saying things like Christians need to uh, see and understand their fellow brothers based on their, uh, their, their past, which, again, there's nothing wrong with just understanding where they're coming from. But the danger comes when you start identifying them as these things and these things only. I think the Bible is clear that our identity is first and foremost in Christ. Our identity is not based on our skin color. It's not based on how rich or poor we are. Paul says that all of these things are rubbish compared to the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. And I think MLK 50 switched that. They said that you can, you need to uh, cherish these things in the same level as your faith in Christ Jesus. And they start taking shots at, uh, um, you know, different reformed teachers. And last year, the Southern Baptist Convention had this thing called Resolution 9, which affirm critical race theory intersectionality as a hermeneutical tool. Uh, basically, they're saying that you need to understand scripture uh, based on the, my own, your own experience. So when you read scripture, how, well, how does that impact you? How does that make you feel? And what the danger of that is, even though the statement Resolution 9 said things like, um, it's under the authority of scripture, you know pretty much, like, it, it, the liberal drift in any seminary, any institution, always begins when they start allowing uh, different things to come in uh, to, to uh, change the way that they understand scripture or, or interpret scripture. And again, every single one of the, the theologies I've mentioned, liberation theology, black theology, black liberation theology, womanist theology, feminist, LGBTQ, critical, these are all actually hermeneutical lenses. They're using something else outside of what we, you and I would use in terms of um, you know, the method we use to understand scripture is historical, contextual, and grammatical. We want to understand uh, what the um, author means, but 
all of these other uh, theologies and hermeneutical methods essentially say, well, what does this mean to me? And that is very dangerous because you will easily dilute the gospel. So this is uh, what's going on in terms of the history. Now, there are some things that I haven't mentioned, like, okay, I'm Alcatraz Video 2018, uh, last year's Shepherds Conference. Uh, was it last, actually, okay. Was it, yeah, the last year, not this year, this last, like 2019's Shepherds Conference. Uh, I didn't, I, I remember Raj and I were there, and I remember the, the, that Q&A panel, that discussion, and they were mentioning these for terms. They were talking, they talked about the MLK 50, uh, you know, apologizing from the Southern Baptist Convention, all of these different things. And at the time, I didn't fully grasp why does that even matter. And I think a year after that, being removed from it, I began to see why this is important. It's because things like the Black Lives Matter movements are now saying that if you don't choose a side, if you don't, uh, if you don't uh, hold to our views, then you are on the wrong side of history. Now, it wouldn't be surprising if this is one of those things that is going to cause persecution. Because again, we're going to look at the next time that what they hope for, really, there is no end game. There is no a definitive end to the movement. There is no peace in this movement because this movement thrives on hate. It thrives on destroying everything that there is, um, every type of family structure, any type of gender uh, structure, everything if you again we'll look at the next time their their hope and goal is to dismantle everything um, and I think the biggest thing though is that this group is not marked by love or forgiveness this group has to thrive on hate because if they forgave those that persecuted them then this group will cease to exist but because they don't they they're devoid of that everything that everyone has to do if they're part of this movement has to constantly do penance. You're constantly having to apologize. You're constantly having to advance them. You can't constantly have to like uh, give up your uh, liberties or whatever so that others uh, can have it. It's always things that you have to give up, and it's really a works-based type of salvation. Now, this is just the, the history of it. Uh, we're going to get more into it on the next uh, part of this, where I, where I look at their website and so like you could I, I would recommend you to bring your bibles with me as i read the statements and then we would look at it from the scripture and why these things are wrong and my hope is that it's not that you don't we again it's not that we don't want to protect black lives but understand that when we when people are saying black lives matter they mean something way more than what what we say and it's a lot more sinister uh if, especially if you look carefully at what they believe um, so I hope this is helpful, but uh, let me close our time in prayer. Lord God, we ask you for grace um, and even, the, again, discernment in this whole situation as we are looking at this group, and we know that this group is, is not new, um, but it is the current one that we have to be able to discern and, and know whether these people that are part of this movement are advancing things that... Um, that, that, that align to your word. And Lord, um, may we be humble enough, even bold enough, to turn from this group, uh, not because we don't care about black lives, but for everything else that they believe, everything else that they hold to um, uh, compromises uh, your word, Lord. And may we have a high view of who you are, a high view of your, and may we cherish the, the treasure that is uh, your, 
be with us uh, as we think through these things. And if you have discussion with other brothers and sisters, may we be patient uh, as we're all still trying to work through um, how to think and how to feel about this. Um, Lord, may we always make sure that we are first and foremost faithful to you, um, that we that in our thoughts, in our actions, in our conversations with one another, in the, in the coming days and all the discussion, um, that it would be something that would build up the body and ultimately further the gospel, Lord. Thank you for this time that we have to discuss this. Pray these things your son's name. Amen.